Welcome back to Dictatorum, episode 2.3, Communism Steamrolls Its Way Into Romania. Last time, we saw how Romania was slowly industrializing and flirting with democracy at times. Then, it fell under the fascist yoke in the 30s, and proceeded to get its teeth kicked in for much of World War II. Meanwhile, young Nicolae Ceausescu fought bravely for Romania in the war, became a hero at Stalingrad, and won all kinds of awards. Nah, just kidding. Ceausescu was in prison for pretty much all of Romania's involvement in World War II. This was just the latest in a string of jailing since he was a teenager, having first been arrested at 15. He got thrown in jail this time right before the war started, and would sit there for almost five years. As we saw last episode, the war was going pretty badly for Romania. Although Antonescu was secretly conducting negotiations with the Allies to blunt the impact of the Allied hammer on Romania, he wasn't in a good negotiating position. By late summer of 44, the Soviets were knocking at the door of the Romanian frontier, and on 23rd of August, King Michael finally decided to do something about it. That day, he launched a coup which brought down Antonescu, who was arrested. King Michael appointed a small council to lead the country, led by a military officer and consisting of members of all the parties who supported the coup. The Germans swiftly retaliated by bombing targets all over Romania, but it didn't change anything. By now, the Wehrmacht was in full retreat, and the Germans could do nothing but continue to run away from the Soviet juggernaut. After the retreat from Stalingrad, the Romanian army wasn't in much shape to really put up any kind of fight either. The Red Army crossed the Prut River from Moldova essentially unopposed. The Soviets were still treating Romania as a hostile power, and so they took almost all the troops they encountered as prisoners of war. By the 1st of September, the Red Army rolled into Bucharest itself, and by the 12th, they'd occupied pretty much the entire country, and they were in a mood to dictate, rather than negotiate, terms. The Romanians agreed, at gunpoint really, to join the war for the Allies and support 12 fully equipped divisions for the war effort. They would allow Allied troops to move through Romanian territory and make war reparations of $300 million to the Soviets. Furthermore, an Allied control commission was instituted with a Soviet official at its head to help govern the country until a final armistice could be signed at the end of the war. The Soviets felt that Romania was now a conquered country and proceeded to treat it as such. The Allied Control Commission, which was supposed to include British and American involvement and the governance of Romania along with the Soviets, proved to be an all-Soviet affair, with the British and Americans playing little actual role in Romania. This would prove fatal to a free and democratic Romania in the years to come. During the Antonescu years, Political parties had been outlawed in Romania, but they kept operating with the quiet tolerance of the government. Don't make trouble, and there won't be trouble. During the war, several political parties on both sides of the political spectrum got together to form a huge political bloc. These parties included both the Liberals and the Peasant Party, but also the Social Democratic Party and the Communists. They called the bloc the BPD, which is Romanian for the Bloc of Democratic Parties. But this bloc fell apart at the, by the end of 1944, and the communists, who had been hurting pretty badly during the reigns of King Carol and General Antonescu, saw itself finally free to operate after years of oppression. Romanian communists who had been living in Moscow for years, and who became known as the Muscovite faction, 
streamed back into Romania almost as soon as the Red Army reached Bucharest. Right before the Soviets walked into the country, Gheorghe Gheorghe Udej got out of prison. Official stories say he escaped, but chances are he bribed his way out as the Romanian government was crumbling. And who did he bring with him? My, the focus of our series, young Nikolai Ceausescu. Gheorghe Udej wasn't one to sit around, and he instantly set about propping up the Communist Party. He could do this because he had already been a member of the party's central committee for years, and by now he'd become the leader of the prison faction, or those communists who chose not to flee to Moscow, but who rather stayed in Romania and subsequently ended up in jail. Over the following months, the Romanian government went about performing a political 180 and dismantling Antonescu's regime, turning what was left of the army against the Germans. And now that political parties could operate in the open, mass recruitment drives kicked into overdrive, starting in the fall of 1944. In January of 1945, Gheorghe Udej and one of the leaders of the Muscovite faction, Anna Pocher, traveled to Moscow and got the Soviets to agree to intervene on the behalf of the communists in the country. When they got back to Romania, Gheorghe Udej, who was by far the leader of the Romanian Communist Party above anybody else, and his ally Anna Pocher demanded the resignation of the current government, to be replaced by one headed by not a communist, but the leader of the Plowman's Front, Petro Groza. The Plowman's Front was a leftist party that advocated for a social security program for farmers, for tax reform to favor small holders in order to improve conditions for the peasantry. But essentially, the Plowman's Front had come under the direct control of the communists. That being said, the recruiting drives that started earlier had really done their job well, and by early 1945, the party had like a million members, so not a small fry in Romanian politics. But still, the king resisted. By the first days of March, the Soviets told King Michael that they couldn't control what happened to Romania if he didn't dismiss the current government and appoint Groza as prime minister. Noting how the West had been absent in Romania since they flipped to the Allied side, Michael had no choice. Groza became Prime Minister on the 6th of March. Now, the Allies, including the Soviet Union, signed a pact in Yalta in which all of the liberated countries were to have free and fair domestic elections. In practice, though, the Soviet Union wouldn't let something like democracy get in the way of it dominating the newly conquered territories in Eastern and Central Europe, and thus actively work to undermine fair elections. This placement of Groza in the Prime Minister's post was the first Soviet step to undermine Romanian elections, which would undoubtedly come soon after the war's end. Not one of the cabinet members in the Groza government belonged to the Liberals or the National Peasants, who, as you'll recall, were the two largest parties by far. Instead, most of the important posts were held by communists, because the Soviets, who essentially had already had control over the government, knew they'd gained ground but were still not super popular in Romania, they did everything they could to strengthen the communist cause and to weaken the majority opposition. Starting in May of 1945, as Germany signed its surrender, the Groza government started installing communist-dominated councils in every county in Romania. The councils had extensive executive powers on any and all normal business at the county level. Backing them up were quote-unquote, vigilance committees who replaced the local police. 
the government encouraged peasants in the countryside to expropriate property from wealthy landowners, and in the cities, workers were pushed to take over their factories from their owners. Meanwhile, the Romanian Communist Party, with Moscow's backing, was really starting to organize, and now it can do so in the open. It held its first party congress in Bucharest in October of the same year. There, Gheorghiu Desh was elected as general secretary, with Anna Pocker and the interior minister Teohari Gheorghescu as his colleagues in the central committee. By December, the Soviets in the West had agreed on the political organization of Romania where one national peasant and one liberal had to have ministerial posts in the Groza government, and early elections had to take place. Groza agreed, and one liberal and one national peasant joined the government as ministers without portfolio. They weren't given any real power at all, and Groza technically fulfilled his obligations. Way to follow only the letter of the law there, Groza. Despite having little internal support compared to the more traditional parties, the communists were taken over, and there was little that democratic-leaning parties could do about it. Romanian troops, who had sustained more than 81,000 casualties since switching sides in October of 1944, and who had marched all the way to the Czech Republic, had to be brought back from the war. The government implemented a law to prosecute those who supported the fascist regime, and established people's tribunals to carry out the prosecutions. The leaders of the fascist regime would of course face a judge, but the law was loosely interpreted, and the Groza government itself took the responsibility of labeling of who was and who was not a war criminal. Luckily for the Groza government, and sadly for Romania, this law was used to persecute the legitimate opposition too, who generally speaking hadn't supported the fascists at all. Antonescu's trial started on the 6th of May 1946, but there was little need for it. The outcome was certain well before Antonescu ever set foot in a courtroom. Found guilty on the 17th of May, he was shot June 1st at Zhilova Prison. Starting that same summer, campaigning for the elections, which didn't have a set date but which had to come soon, began in earnest. Groza appointed the Interior Ministry, controlled by his pal Georgescu, to run the elections. Of course, the communists did everything they could to block the opposition from having a fair shot at campaigning. Georg Udej even remarked to an American diplomat that the communists were taking advantage of every weakness they could, a.k.a. they were suppressing the liberals and national peasants while seriously promoting their own candidates. Also, though, Groza enacted universal suffrage for this election, for the first time in Romanian history, and soldiers would be allowed to vote for the first time as well. This wasn't done for the sake of women and soldiers, though. It was done to throw off the opposition and to strengthen the communists' chances of victories. The soldiers in particular were seen as a source of valuable support, as political commissars preaching the communist gospel were assigned to units to indoctrinate the rank and file. And yeah, I said communist gospel because of the irony. National peasant and national liberal political representatives weren't afforded the same privileges, and their numbers really started to hurt because of it. In October, the government announced the elections would be held on the 19th of November. But the communists and the opposition parties knew that this election would determine the fate of the country. The BPD, led by the communists in the Plowman's Front, predicted a landslide victory, despite not even being close to the most popular parties in the country. 
Recruitment drives had significantly increased membership, but still, a landslide? Come on. Anyone doing any kind of legitimate polling would realize quickly that the communists, who ran in a single ticket with the plowman's front, couldn't hope to gain more than 40% of the vote. Sure, they'd make a strong opposition, but they wouldn't hold a majority. So what did the communists do? They didn't hold strikes like in the Russian Revolution. The population wouldn't show up for strikes. They weren't popular enough. The communists instead proceeded to use voter intimidation tactics. They stood to gain ground the quickest if they could keep the liberals and the national peasants from showing up to vote. So they sent out gangs of big dudes with clubs to, you know, remind people that if they didn't vote red, they might wake up with broken legs. Results were supposed to take about 24 hours to tally and release. When election day came, though, the Interior Ministry noted that the communists and their allies weren't winning. Not by a long shot. An immediate delay was called in releasing the results, ostensibly to make sure everything was handled above bar. In reality, Georgiou Dej, Grozu, and Anna Parker had to confer with Moscow to figure out what to do. They were losing. Reportedly, Moscow gave them pretty simple instructions. Just, quote-unquote, win the election. Vote falsifications started immediately, and when the results came out on the 22nd of November, the communists announced an astounding victory. They claimed 69.8% of the vote, which of course got them the overwhelming majority of seats in the unicameral legislature. The national peasants won 32 seats, and the national liberals only won three seats. Archives that only opened after the fall of communism revealed Moscow's instructions to falsify the vote, and that the national peasants and the national liberals actually got more votes than the communists. Back in 1946, the opposition saw the writing on the wall. Communist governments did not have a history of tolerating other parties for very long, and they must have seen where Romania was headed. The Americans and British protested the results, but effectively did nothing to stop the takeover. The new government took power on 1 December, once again with Groza at the head in the Prime Minister's seat. Communists headed all the major ministries, and effective political opposition ceased to exist. The government's first task was to repair the damage from World War II. In the final peace treaty signed in Paris in August 1946, North Transylvania was returned to Romania, but Bessarabia was not. Nor was southern Dobruja, which remained with Bulgaria. Bukovina was divided in half, with the south staying in Romania's hands, the north going to Soviet Ukraine. The borders of modern Romania had now been drawn. Industry and agriculture had both been hit in disastrous ways, and the communists sought to right the ship by doing what? That's right, central planning. Also, Russian troops, who were supposed to leave within three months of the August 1946 peace treaty, didn't actually leave. The Soviets wanted to make sure their new satellite state would comply with its demands. One of those demands, as laid out in the treaty, was the $300 million in reparation for Romania's role as a German ally for the first four years of the war. Payments to the Soviet government started immediately, as did shipments of things like foodstuffs and raw materials. Not only that, 
but the Soviets started hauling away Romanian machinery and manufacturing equipment to rebuild after the brutal German invasion that left 27 million Soviet citizens dead. Joint Soviet-Romanian companies were formed en masse to facilitate the long-term Soviet domination of the Romanian economy. The new Ministry of Industry and Commerce started confiscating all kinds of agriculture and industrial equipment and property from private owners and companies to start the nationalization process. You see, in a communist society, privately held business was forbidden, and since the Communist Party was now the ruling party, that's how it'd be in Romania too. If you owned a factory, you could expect it to be seized. If you owned a bakery or a paint shop, that'd soon become state property, and you'd just become an employee, paid by the state, no matter what you thought about it. The farm that had been in your family for generations? Yeah, that now belonged to the state. The bounty of your harvest is now not yours to keep and sell, but the government's to distribute as it saw fit. The same was to go for any political opposition in Romania. The leaders of the national peasants, including former Prime Minister Iliu Maniu, were arrested and sent to trial for various crimes, the most common being treason. Maniu was charged with attempting to overthrow the Groza government with the help of the British and the Americans. He fought back in court, insisting that his interactions with the Brits and Yanks were all done in the course of his everyday work as a party leader. But by now, we know that communists don't play fair, and they, didn't, and they don't believe in fair trials either. His fate wasn't ever in doubt. In November of 1947, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. The rest of the national peasant leaders were faced trial all received sentences of between five years and life imprisonment as well. Independent socialists, who were a leftist party like the communists but who were committed to a parliamentary democracy, were soon forced under the communist banner as well. Their leader, Constantin Titel Petrescu, was arrested and sent to prison in May of 1948. They didn't even give him the courtesy of a show trial. He'd get out of prison in 1955, but he was treated so badly during his stay in jail that he spent the rest of his life in the hospital and died just two years later. Finally, the communists went after the last major figure who could become anti-communist rally point, King Michael. For several months at the end of 1946 and the beginning of 1947, Michael attempted to halt the communists by not signing bills and decrees into law, which obviously didn't stop them from advancing their agenda, but it did slow them down. Eventually, though, Michael had to start complying, and after immense pressure, he gave up his attempted strike. By December, though, the communists under Gheorghe Dej would see the end of the monarchy. On the 30th of December, Michael was at Pelish Castle, northwest of Bucharest, when he got a summons to go back to the capital. When he got there, he was met by a brigade of communist soldiers outside Elizabetha Palace, as well as by Gheorghe Dej and Prime Minister Grosu. During their meeting, Michael was forced to sign an abdication letter and vacate the throne. According to some accounts, this was at literal gunpoint. Other accounts say that the communist leaders threatened to murder over a thousand student protesters who had recently been arrested. In any case, they already had an advocation letter typed up and ready to go when Michael got there. He did so, and four days later left Romania for exile. He wouldn't return for more than 40 years. The same day as Michael's abdication, the government declared itself a People's Republic. 
Georgi Udej and his allies, including Nikolai Ceausescu, had to work tirelessly for more than three years to bring about a complete political revolution in Romania. They used force, intimidation, fraud, show trials, and basically every other brutal tactic in the book to do so. Free democracy in the country was now dead. The only political movement that was now legal was the Communist Party. The Soviets couldn't be happier. They had another client state in southeastern Europe, and Soviet control now reached from Vladivostok in the east to Berlin in the west, and as far south as Albania and Bulgaria in the Balkans. Romania made a nice little addition to the club. Its resources and industry were already fueling the post-war economy. Politically, the nations of Eastern and Central Europe would soon join together in an anti-Western coalition known as the Warsaw Pact. Romania was, of course, a member of the bloc. Next time, we'll take a look and see at what Ceausescu was doing all this time. Plus, we'll examine his role in the newly appointed communist Romania, and we'll see how he went from an unexceptional party bureaucrat to the sole leader of Romania through cunning and sheer force of will. Thank you.